0: A quick warning, today's episode includes explicit language and graphic descriptions. Please be advised. When you walk
1: into the performance gallery at the Academy Museum, the first thing you'll likely notice are the audition tapes and screen tests playing on the wall directly in front of you.
0: There's always a special feeling when you kind of get, you know, a look behind the curtain. This is Dara
1: Jaffe, who we've heard from before this season. One of the curators of the gallery
0: there's something about the you know the unpolished i always think about uh, tessa thompson's audition for dear white people and she's just kind of sitting at a, a kind of cluttered office desk and you know it's just it's it's all so unglamorous but of course then she's just delivering you know the same emotion and talent that of course got her the role that you're going to see in the film There are also
1: auditions in the gallery from people who didn't ultimately get the role. In episode one, we heard about the actresses who were up for the lead in the 1940 movie
0: Rebecca. Another film where we're showing people who did not get the role uh, is for Kimberly Pierce's Boys Don't Cry. The
1: 1999 film was directed and co-written by Kimberly Pierce. It's a fictionalized version of the real-life story of Brandon Tina. A transgender man living in Nebraska who was beaten, raped, and later killed at the age of 21.
0: We are showing the the audition for Hillary Swink, who got the role of Brandon Tina, uh, but we are also showing auditions from Silas Howard and Harry Dodge, and we wanted to approach this very carefully in any case where you know where you're showing auditions of someone who didn't get the role i think it's a bit sensitive but especially given that silas and harry are both trans men and there has been a lot of discussion over the casting of brandon and tina and of course there's a lot of push now for for roles such as that to be played and told by people who can authentically embody that experience that real life lived experience um, and so we just wanted to make sure that everyone, including Hillary Swank and Silas Howard and Harry Dodge, felt comfortable with all of their auditions being shown side by side.
2: The scene that the Academy Museum is showing is, is one of my favorite terrifying and
1: exciting scenes. Director Kimberly Pierce provided the Boys Don't Cry audition tapes. Here she's describing the scene from Hillary Swank's screen test on display in the museum. Brandon has
2: been living in Fall City as a man, in love with Lana, having a full-blown relationship. In the film, Lana is played by Chloe Sevigny. And is not dealing with Brandon's past, and Brandon comes back to talk to Brandon's cousin, and is so excited that Brandon thinks that they're going to marry this woman, Lana, and Fantastic Matt McGrath playing the cousin is basically saying, are you out of your fucking mind? You know what I mean? You are not going to marry this girl. And if you do, have you told her that you're a girl? And uh, it really, it's the warning that Brandon needs before Brandon returns back to Fall City and dives all the way into this life and finds the love that he's looking for and unfortunately uh, is punished for that.
1: Here's Hillary Swank's screen test. It's a grainy video, very lo fi. And then the scene from the film.
3: You know, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's
2: good down there. It's good. Ball City? Yeah. They hang faggots in places like that. You know that,
3: don't you? They hang faggots down there. Did you know that? Never even been there, Luke. look.
2: Okay. Isn't she beautiful?
3: She like white trash.
2: I'm going to ask her to marry me. Ready, action. Yeah, the only bad thing about hitching is finding a car, I can a guitar.
1: And... What you're hearing now is from Silas Howard's screen test, as as from a different now. scene that yeah, you can guitar see guitar at the museum, too. Oh yeah, I
2: oh, don't know. It's a guitar. That's okay, I don't know why I'm doing shit. It's just a guy thing. I cry when I watch that stuff because I see the beauty of Harry Dodge and the beauty of Silas Howard and the authenticity of the lives that they were living and that I was living a very similar life, but mine wasn't captured on camera, and that we were all leaning in to try to capture the essence and the beauty of this story. And they were part of my better understanding of that character.
1: Kimberly Pierce is trans butch. While making Boys Don't Cry, she identified as a butch lesbian who could be trans
2: so when I look at at these tapes and I encourage other people to look at them, try to be open-minded to that was a different time. That was the time that we were all creating these identities publicly in a way that they didn't, and privately, in a way that they didn't formally
1: exist. Who can play what role? The answer to that question, in terms of race, gender identity, sexuality, ability, and age, has changed over the years. What does it mean when an actor is cast to play a person from a marginalized group that in real life they're not a part of? What if the filmmakers make a genuine effort to cast someone who does share the same identity as the character, but decide that the best actor for the job is someone who doesn't? These are some of the questions we'll explore in this episode of the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting, Boys Don't Cry. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. More after the break. When it comes to the question of who can play what role, in recent years, queer stories, and trans stories in particular, have been front and center in the cultural conversation. And there's been a reappraisal of some films that tell trans stories, like Boys Don't Cry in 1999, Transamerica in 2005, and Dallas Buyers Club in 2013, about whether trans roles in those films should have gone to trans actors. Even today, there are very few opportunities available. GLAAD's annual study, called the Studio Responsibility Index, tracks the quantity, quality, and diversity of LGBTQ characters in major studio films. In the five years leading up to 2021, the year of GLAAD's latest report, they found only one transgender character in a major studio release.
2: I love this conversation, and it it keeps evolving, and that's what I'm so excited to to dive into and really bring people inside of.
3: Yeah, it's amazing how much it's evolved since uh, we did this initially.
1: That's Boys Don't Cry co-writer and director Kimberly Pierce and casting director Carrie Barden. Barden's credits include American Psycho, Dallas Buyers Club, Spotlight, The Help, and several films by director John Waters. So to get at this conversation about casting in the context of trans stories, we're focusing on one film, Boys Don't Cry.
3: The outreach to the community at the time was mostly non-professionals, and we went all over the country looking for, you know, someone to play this important role from the community and ended up more traditional casting, as you can tell from the film. And I feel like, you know, today it's such a different world because the the voice that this project especially, and then some other projects have given to all of our communities has been massive in the way that we can now view actors and how they approach projects and bringing authenticity to a story that we're telling, you know, because we're not making documentaries.
1: And just a note, a documentary called The Brandon Tina Story was released a year before Boys Don't Cry.
3: We're making true stories that are a narrative that's got somewhat of a fictionalized version of a true story, but a true story. So it's challenging, obviously, to make sure that we get it right. And I feel like, you know, 25 years ago, with what we had at our Fingertips for this one. We, we got a lot of it right.
1: Kimberly, I mean, Carrie used the term authentic. That's a, it's a complex term. It is. And I'm just really curious about as you were thinking for such a long time about the way that this film is at the intersection of a true story and an imagining, right? Like a way of, of making that story visible to a much larger audience. What were some of the guiding principles that you had in terms of what you were looking for in that performance?
2: I mean if we go all the way back, I think very quickly to paint a picture for people of where, you know, and I might use terms that are old fashioned because that's the age that I am, but you know for us as gay people, I mean think back then it was like in many states it was still illegal. You could lose your job, you certainly lost the support of your family if you came out as gay. So I mean, I had come to New York like so many people in order to find my community, in order to be an artist, and that wasn't necessarily going to happen as easily in the rest of the country. So particularly in New York, was interesting to me is, just to keep this simple, you had gay people, gay men and lesbians, pretty much segregated from each other and segregated from the trans community. And there really wasn't a huge trans community. So as a young person, and it's important for me to say I'm trans, So I'm trans butch, probably, which is I'm a combination of the two. Um, And even back then, I was trying to figure out exactly what I was because I knew I was attracted to girls, which is what we would typically call homosexual, right? I'm a girl who likes girls. But I've always been a tomboy. I've always been masculine center. And I thought, oh, I'm probably a trans person. So I was talking to other trans people. I was considering doing hormones. I was considering doing surgery. I didn't know where I was going to fall in the gender continuum. And that's pretty typical. So I was lucky enough to be at Columbia Graduate Film School, studying with all these great masters, Paul Schrader, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese, Corinne Jacker, who was a well-known lesbian playwright. And I took this story to them, and so many of the people were confused about how we might make this a movie. And the first question that I was asked by my lesbian playwriting teacher was, is Brandon a lesbian or is Brandon trans? Does Brandon want to sleep with women or does Brandon want to be a man? She was doing the best she could to understand this story and how we might turn it into exactly what Carrie just said, a fiction. And there was a true story, but how would you going to turn it into a fiction? And immediately, people wanted to simplify it, right? They wanted to say, "Is Brandon this or is Brandon that?" They wanted to put Brandon into a category, particularly because I was searching for my own identity. I knew that the last thing I wanted to do was simplify Brandon. So I went and interviewed trans people. I met up with a group called the Transsexual Menace, self-named. We all got together and I interviewed them for a number of days. And I just said, who do you sleep with? Who do you desire? How do you see your body? How do you see Brandon? So for me, it was tabula It was like, let me understand everything before I start simplifying.
1: What you're describing really tracks with the lack of academic or, you know, kind of general audience social awareness of the complexity of the issues that I mean you you were doing research that really was had yet to really be done or established in terms of gender studies
2: right because it was my own gender study of my own gender in my community and I think it's important for people to realize I was in love with Brandon when I read about this amazing human being who had transformed himself into his vision of the gender identity he thought he was and gone out and loved women and lived as a man that had not been done in the popular culture. I'm, um, of course, there probably had been other people who had done it, but that was the first time this had risen to a place that you could read about it in Playboy. You could read about it in the New Yorker. You could read about it in the New York Times. Like that was stunning to us. So for me, it was like, Oh, let me take this piece of truth and go seek it out and find how we could possibly tell this story in a way that was honest to the story. But yes, always putting Brandon Tina first. And one thing that was important in terms of the casting was who could ever play this role? Because the person was so extraordinary in his daringness and his charm and his charisma and the way that he formed himself. I asked myself who this person was and I said, how could I possibly find a human being like this to, to play this role? And then I went out searching for that human. Mm-hmm. And again, given where I was, which was, I was in grad school. I wasn't even broke. I was in debt. I was poor. My phone was being turned off. Like, You know, it was like a big deal. I'd have to go down and, you know, put my dimes in the the phone, you know, and, you know, call people and ask them to audition. It was just my money. And then the only people that were going to be auditioning for this were queer, that was who I had access to. So I was going to all the gay clubs. We would basically just put flyers up and say, we love this character. We want to find somebody who can play this character. So I interviewed all the trans men. I interviewed all the drag kings. I interviewed all the butch lesbians. And that was who I had access to. So that's really where we started. And that was about a, a good three and a half years of really only hitting the queer community.
1: Carrie, maybe you could join in the story a little bit here in terms of your own career at this point. Where, where were you? What kinds of, you know, what projects had you worked on? And, you know, just kind of give us a picture of where this project came into your own trajectory.
3: I, I had uh, moved to New York in 91. Uh, Billy Hopkins and Suzanne Smith were my business partners back then. And uh, it was the beginning of the world of independent films being able to be made. And and the center of that was the New York. It was not Los Angeles. And working with Christine Vachon and Jeff Sharp and John Hart, who were also on, involved with this movie, and Robin O'Hara and Scott McCauley and Dolly Hall and all these people that were making independent films, and a lot of queer content, too. I had worked with Christine on... Stonewall, the first Stonewall, and just continued working with her because I loved working with her. And the scripts she was sending us to consider were always something I wanted to dive into. And then when we got Boys Don't Cry, I was like, okay, this is probably at that point and still partially one of the biggest challenges in casting I'd ever come upon. And it was just so much fun to, first of all, dive into the story. Second of all, work with a collaborator like Kimberly because that's what I really enjoy in casting, is collaborating with the directors and the creative team and figuring out what works and what doesn't work and, and then putting those pieces together. And Chloe kept saying she wanted to play Brandon, and it's like, yeah, I know, <laughs> you know. So it was a really interesting casting process, and it went, along, it went for a, a ways, a long ways. And then when I was in L.A. on a studio film, I wanted to tap into the pool of LA talent to see who was out there. So, on my lunch hour for a week, I started doing auditions for Boys Don't Cry, and that's when um, Hillary came in. That's when Peter Sarsgaard came in. That's when Jeanetta Arnett, who plays um, Chloe's mom, came in. And so, three important cast members were from those sessions. But it was just it was that long process. And then when Hillary came in, it was like but you're so Julia Roberts, you <laughs> know, you're just such a girl, you know? And she just kept working it and working it and working it. I mean, Kimberly put her through the mill.
1: Well, talk more about that because obviously there were ways in which you knew that the film would hang on the casting of this role. And so Kimberly, like what, when, when Carrie, it sounds like you were opening up a range of additional possibilities beyond the scope of what you have been trying to do in the name of quote unquote Authentic casting.
3: Yeah.
1: So, what were some of the adjustments or the, the questions you were asking, Kimberly, as you started to talk to Hillary and, and, and other folks beyond that scope?
2: I mean, it was such a fascinating journey because I was trying to figure out my own transness and my own butch lesbianness and, and all my desire. And I was starting to, you know, dress more like a boy and pass like a boy. And that was kind of what my friends were doing. So, I was studying what were the things that a female bodied person had to do in order to pass. And I know that the word "pass" is not necessarily a good word now, but at some point you need a functional term for what it means if you don't feel that you're in your, the, the gender assigned to you at birth is not the gender you identify with. So you have to do things to yourself, that's been my experience, to make myself feel more in my gender. So I had studied lowering one's voice. Um, I had studied how we stand. I had studied whether we smile or we don't smile, how we cut the hair, what kind of makeup we could put in, all kinds of things that trans people would be doing and were doing in order to uh, create the gender that was appropriate to them. So basically, when I would go into these auditions with queer people, they pretty much got the gender stuff, right? And so it was like, they could do it, but A, did they pass enough on camera for that character to work within the community and the story that I was building? That's where passing actually does matter. And also, could they act? And so we would hit certain limitations where maybe the person could pass, but they couldn't act. Maybe they could act, but they couldn't pass. Then when Ellen came out in 1997, it was a game changer. Because prior to that, you didn't want people didn't necessarily want to play queer because it was dangerous for their career. After Ellen came out and normalized it, everybody wanted to play queer. So then I had all these straight girls coming in, putting socks in their pants and putting their hair up and saying to me, I'm Brandon. And I was like, mm, well, okay. And then I would give them some direction in terms of finding their masculinity and finding this character and they would do it, but you didn't, it didn't feel authentic. And that was really the thing. They just couldn't get the gender stuff working in a way that I knew it to be true by being friends with and also being trans myself. So and but I think what they loved was when I would say, well, lower your sexuality and find yourself. Like I think that there was so much fun for them in trying to even approach it. So by the time I got to, um, I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds of people and Kerry had done so much work and every night he would send me these tapes and I would just fall asleep watching them and being like, oh my God, nobody's going to get this. This human doesn't exist anywhere. And we even opened it up. We didn't, we had racially blind casting, So we had African-Americans coming in. We had Latinx uh, people coming in. Like everybody was coming in. We were just looking for this human. And uh, Hillary's tape came in and it was, I mean, she has a naturally angular face. She has those gorgeous brown eyes. And it's not that she passed necessarily as a man. It's that she blurred the gender line. So that was a real win that I had not found in almost every other actor that I looked at, other than the trans men and the drag kings who really knew how to make themselves uh, pass as a man. So she had the gender blurring down. But I tell you, and I wonder if this is what you saw too, Carrie, that person smiled. That person had charm, that person was warm, that person wanted love, they just like swept you up. And that was what Brandon needed, not only to pass as a boy, but to enter into people's lives and have them love him on the terms that he wanted to be loved. And that to me was the game changer. Like I needed that, we needed that in order to bring this person to life. And whatever Hillary gave us or whatever anybody gave us at that point, it was really the beginning of a journey because I was gonna then have her or him or whoever live as a boy connect to other people as a boy and physically train, go through voice training. Um, Hillary worked with trans people. I mean, it was going to be a full-on boot camp of becoming this person. So whatever we saw in the room was really the beginning of the journey. And we all had to, you know, check ourselves and say, we're about to entrust the most important role in this, this that carries the entire movie to this human being. Do they have what it takes and will they give it what it takes to succeed?
3: And that was one of the things, too, about people coming in and and wanting to do this, but it was more like posturing. It was like, I felt like sometimes we were watching Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, ahoy, mate, I'm, you know, a trans person, you know, and it was like, yeah, that doesn't work because it's a surface thing. And I think what you hit on just now, Kim, is uh, the wanting of love, because I feel like that was one of the important parts of this film that made this story work, because When Brandon finally found Lana and Lana didn't know what she was looking for exactly and found this person, this man that was kind and loving, you know, was part of that journey that Brandon was on, as Kim was saying, to have a whole life, to have not just a marginal life. And I feel like that was a lot of, you know, what a lot of the actors didn't quite get. You know, and, and the more we worked with Hillary, the more she understood what that meant. And she called me one day and she's and and I think she may have called you the same day, Kim, and she had been working really hard and she called me one day and she's like, I just went out and you know, with I think with her sister or somebody and uh she was in a coffee shop and she said and this girl came up to me and, and told me she thought I was a really cute guy and asked for my number. <laughs> it's like good for you, man. <laughs> But she did, she really invested in not posing, not posturing and finding what this person, their their essence was, you know. Casting is weird because usually it's not as um, in depth as this was and you don't have as much time. Usually you, you, we have a start date and, you know, with this we didn't have a start date until we found Brandon, you know, because we couldn't make the movie without that. So it was that kind of process that was much different than any casting process that I had been through and have been through since, really.
1: More of my conversation with Boys Don't Cry director Kimberly Pierce and casting director Carrie Barden after the break. For both of you, when did you first realize the impact that this film was having? That this was such a groundbreaking portrayal. And also just, you know, not just on film audiences, but on the conversations more broadly about gender identity.
3: For me, and I'll go first if you don't mind, Kim. Yeah. It was watching The Rough Cuts. She was she was kind enough to invite me to Rough Cuts. And I was just overwhelmed. I mean, I really was. And seeing what she was working on, what Kim was working on, to get this story out there with the impact that everyone wanted it to have was, it, it was stunning to me. And as I said, it's not a documentary. It's a documentary that would have taken a long time to to get an audience, you know, involved, I think. But the this film is like, you're swept into it almost immediately, you know, and I think... That's, for me, when I realized that this was going to have an impact if it got any kind of release, any kind of audience.
2: I only had three and a half days to rehearse the whole movie. All the other characters fell in line around Hillary because Hillary had committed so deeply to bringing Brandon Tina to life. And, and that worked for all the other actors. And that was an amazing moment that continued through when we were shooting and there were so many days I would come to set and my heart, you know, I was just on fire. I was so in love with this character and the possibility that we were bringing this person to life. Um, Our first screening was the NC-17 cut because it was in Europe and we screened it and it was a 10 minute standing ovation and I cried. And as I walked out, the Italians screamed, we love a Brendan, we love a Brendan. And I was like, well, then, then it It worked. Because the whole point was to get you to fall in love with Brandon, And of course, then it was, you know, all the awards that Hillary won and Chloe won and and winning the Oscar. And now it's in the Library of Congress as a national treasure.
3: I'm just so honored and privileged to have been a part of this and to have gotten to work with Kim on this story. Because it's, she could have hired somebody else. (laughs) But I
2: don't think I I would have
3: loved it as much. (laughs) Thank
2: God I didn't. Carrie, yes, Carrie made it happen. And that's the importance of a casting director which I think because this show is devoted to to casting it's so
1: vital and I don't think it's something that people fully understand. Absolutely. And and the implications not just for the industry and for film representation but then what it means to people outside. You know, what it reflects to people how casting decisions can reflect larger issues. I mean, one of the big questions we're asking in this season is this question of who can play what role, you know? And for so many years it was commonplace in Hollywood filmmaking for white actors to be able to play any racial identity. And, you know, Kimberly, we've talked about your film many times. And one of the most striking things I ever heard you say is to try to disaggregate the idea that decisions about something like the casting of Boys Don't Cry, how that will relate to something like a blackface performance or, you know, that, that we're talking about you even used the term passing earlier in in terms of thinking about how people read identity and how we play different identities and i'm I'm really curious to hear your reflections on this question of who can play what role and how that's impacted your work on this film or our other films that you've worked on I think you're bringing up such an
2: important thing I mean you know it isn't like a blackface where you had a a dominant culture, the white culture, who's then impersonating in a horrific way African Americans, it was, I was a trans person going looking for somebody to play the role. I think the other thing is, you know, when a white person does the the unfortunate thing of, of blackface, they're putting on race on the outside. That isn't what we were doing, we were taking it from the inside, which was, Hillary was inhabiting this human being as best as she could. And look, it's like gender is a thing that evolves over time. So, I don't think that we should have people who have privilege playing marginalized groups and taking those roles. But at the same time, when we did it, what we were really trying to do was find anybody who could play the role. And after hundreds, maybe even a thousand auditions, finally, we found a person who could.
3: It's, a, it's an interesting progress that we're in right now because I've done several, you know, studio and network projects recently where there's a gay character, or there's a character that comes out as gay in the storyline. And of course, we're not allowed to ask someone what their sexual identity is. And so it's a challenge there. And then it's a complicated discussion, you know, because there is like the closet that people had been in for up until recently and still are a lot of people for whatever reasons they are. And also giving the opportunity for actors and actresses who haven't had as many opportunities because of their identity, is also kind of one of the key things in this.
2: Well, you know, some people suggested I should just cast a man as Brandon back then, because then they said, well, if you cast a man, then, then she will pass as a man. And it was so interesting as a female-bodied person, which, wait, that would be the marginalized group. That was the thing that all the lesbians were like, there is no way. There is no way you're going to put a man in that role. And that was an interesting response. Like, there was a line there.
3: It wouldn't have honored Brandon.
1: Right. No. So I would love to ask you both, like, what you consider to be the most important aspects of the legacy of Boys Don't Cry. And if you think that the casting of the film is an important part of its legacy.
3: That's an interesting question in today's lens, I think. Yes, I think the casting of the film is part of its legacy. And it's also part of the, the pushback that I've gotten at, at different points because of casting Hillary. And I think, you know, having given a voice to this trans community that was kind of nascent at that point even, because there wasn't really that big... I mean, as you're saying, Kim, it's like you were still looking to figure out what that meant, you know? So I feel like today, we would have more of a pool of trans talent to choose from, and it would make it easier to do this film with a trans person in the lead. I really do. And I feel like, you know, that's part of what the legacy of this film is. You get to have these people that now are saying, I can do this. I can be out there. I can be honoring my life journey and also be an artist that has a public profile without being slammed or being, you know, vilified, you know, because that's Just being from any queer community or any marginalized community, we're vilified. You know, we're up against everything. And so I feel like that journey that we've been on is still, we're on it still. But I feel like there's more voices out there that are able to speak out and to show their face and to be proud of who they are. And it's been a long journey. But it's—I I feel like that's part of the legacy of this film—is that we are moving forward with giving people a voice that they don't have to shut down.
2: I, I love what you just said. I mean, yes, I think that the casting is essential to this movie, um, and I think it is—it's superpower. I think what's really interesting is what Carrie said about more people are identifying. Because back then, anybody who identified as what we would have called a transsexual probably was aiming towards hormones and surgery, once they had crossed that threshold, it would have been hard for them to play that role. Because if there was no ambiguity in Brandon's gender, which is what was inherent to somebody who had not had hormones and had not had surgery, right, Brandon slipped in and out of being perceived as a female-bodied person. That was vital, um, so now what you would probably have is people who identified as non-binary, people who identified as trans but were maybe not having surgery and not having hormones. Like, so you would have a wider pool of people who were able to approach that role, and, and that would have been fascinating. And so I would say – and again, I don't want to step – as a trans person, I don't want to step on any other trans person's interpretation of this. So I'll just say for me – Making the movie was a trans journey, and what Hillary went through by living as a boy and working with trans people and inhabiting this character, that was a trans journey. Wherever she ended up afterwards, there was an element of, of going into it the way a method actor, you know, goes into it.
1: That was Boys Don't Cry co-writer and director Kimberly Pierce and casting director Carrie Barden. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting. If you haven't already, please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Next time on the Academy Museum podcast, casting in animation. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie-making. And be sure to check out the Performance Gallery to learn more about the art of casting and see the auditions and screen tests from Boys Don't Cry and other films. The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the vice president of podcasts. And Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias director of content development. This episode was produced and edited by Monica Bushman. Our other producer is Victoria Alejandro. Antonia Sarajito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, las.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAS Studios. Our gratitude to Assistant Curator Nicholas Barlow and Associate Curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's Performance Gallery. And to one of our inaugural Assistant Curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the Performance Gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsey Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver-Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brahra, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.